welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD's CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Brett Oliver. Dr. Oliver is the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist Health, headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, and a practicing part-time family physician with the Baptist Family Physicians of Scott County. He received his medical degree from the University of Kentucky and completed his residency at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Dr. Oliver, Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. We're so glad to have you on the show today. You've had such a diverse and extensive career in healthcare. You've really been on all sides of the proverbial table from family medicine, both solo and with Baptist Health. You've also shaped policy with HITAC, the ONC at HHS, and at EPIC. And now you've been leading informatics at Baptist Health for more than half a decade. So I'm really curious about all of that. But to start the conversation, I really wanted to dig into why did you get into family medicine and healthcare? And then how did you find your way to informatics? Well, thanks for having me, Alan. And gosh, you read that and like, I am old. That's what I heard. <laughs> That's what I heard out of that. But yeah, uh, you know, I've reflected on that several times just over the course of my career. How did, I mean, what was it with family medicine? And I really think for me, it comes down to, I'm, I'm a generalist by nature. I, I get curious about lots of things. And it was being that that one-stop shop for my patients that they could come to with any problem. That didn't mean I was going to have the answer for them, but I knew where to go with it. And then I could partner with them. It was one of the things that I learned over my career. The most important thing I could say was, you know, I don't know, but we're not stopping there. I don't know, but we'll, we'll do this together and find it out. So I think it was kind of that generalist nature and being, I enjoy being the liaison as well between some of my subspecialty colleagues and patients and well, I wish we all had more time with our patients and that I could call on my subspecialty colleagues to be more detailed. A lot of times I would see patients back after their visit with a subspecialist to translate what exactly and just try, what does this exactly mean? I think I know. And, and then probably the most important thing for me over time that I learned, I don't know that I knew this going into it, but was the continuity. I really, really liked getting to know my patients and their family over time, watching them kids grow up or, you know, adopt the dog or, you know, just different things that really made it more than just the science, which I found incredibly interesting, but putting people behind it really, I didn't like the thought of seeing you for something and then, okay, nice knowing you and moving on to have that continuity. I love that. So I know, you know, you went to school for biology to begin with. Primary care was not just always an innate kind of, like there's always these personality traits that I find with different specialties. Was yeah. that you from the beginning? Did you know that's the path you wanted? I think I was pretty naive to all the specialties. When I first entered med school, all the specialties that I could choose, you know, I was blessed with, I didn't have a lot of chronic problems or anything growing up. So when we went to the doctor, we went to the doctor who was our family physician, you know, and I kind of went into it like that. It was fascinating too, because, and I hope it's changed at this point. I know Josh and I were talking off camera that his wife's in medical school now. And back in the day, you know, I was fortunate enough to do pretty well in medical school and people knew that I was doing primary care and they would say, why are you doing primary care? You could do so much more kind of approach to it. And my feeling was what's more than primary care in terms of the breadth of what you have to be prepared for. I honestly have some misgivings that our residency shouldn't be just three years, but you know, much longer than that. So you definitely want to have a lifelong learning approach. But yeah, I think it fits my personality from the standpoint of being kind of generalist by nature and like being curious by lots of things. I got that, I think, from my dad. But yeah, there was no medicine before me. And uh, my wife's a physician as well. And whether it's good or bad, neither one of our children are interested in medicine. So I don't know if we scared them off or, or what, but 
we didn't push it. They didn't find it interesting. So we moved on, but yeah, it was just sort of what I thought I wanted going in. And, you know, there were probably a few periods of time where I thought maybe this would be interesting, but then I thought doing that all the time, that's it. Like I couldn't get out of the heart or I couldn't get out of the lungs or what have you that I drifted towards the more primary care. So Brett, fun fact for you in Canada, family medicine is a two-year residency. However, there was a ton of controversy in the past three to six months because the college of family physicians was trying to actually increase it to three years because of, you know, the complexity of primary care now. And yeah. But there was really strong backlash from the, the Medical Association for Physicians. And so they've actually stopped that plan, at least for now. And I, I don't quite know if it's actually going to get legs again. But yeah, huge difference. I was not aware of that. That's interesting. And there's so much that we didn't even get covered. Now, you could argue back when I was there, you know, we had an obstetrics training, inpatient training, and maybe you just know from the get-go, I'm not going to have anything to do with the hospital, so we're going to adjust training. But we got very little, and I thought my residency was really good, but very little in terms of running a practice. Maybe that's not as important, but still you've got 40% of folks that go out and are in private practice of some form, not employed. It, there was way too much learning on the job back when both I was a small practice and solo for sure. So yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. You better be a good learner beyond your schooling, that's for sure. So you know what's not in residency? Not much on informatics. Yet somehow over the years, you ended up, I guess, landing in informatics, leading informatics, and doing a lot more now in that space. How did you end up in, uh, in tech? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so I, definitely the caveat is I do not have a computer science background. That's not been my uh, experience to the, this point or before I've gotten into informatics. So I had a mentor that uh, I got involved. He was with Baptist and he, he ultimately became a CIO slash CMIO for a period of time. And he was in charge of our first system-wide EHR. We were rolling out Epic uh, a number of years ago. And he said, I've got this opportunity for you. We had, he had been a mentor and he had had me in some leadership positions. So he knew me pretty well. And we had dinner one night and he said, I want you to be the medical director for our Epic implementation. And so we talked about what that, what that meant, what it looked like across our eight hospitals. And, and then the kicker was, and I need four of your five days. <laughs> you can still see patients one day a week. And, you know, and as those implementations go, they're not on these long drawn out timelines, right? So basically I need to know yesterday, but I'll give you two weeks. And so, I mean, it was like, whoa, I don't, gosh, I don't know. I'm not a computer guy. I think when I look back in retrospect, maybe it's like, well, Oliver can figure it out and he knows that then we can pretty much count on the rest of the providers are going to be okay with it. I don't know if that was part of it or not. But there were, I mean, so the bottom line is I prayed about it, talked to my wife about it, thought, you know what? The worst thing that happens is I go back and do exactly what I, we both sides agreed to that. If they didn't like me, I didn't like what I was doing. I'd go back and do what I was already doing before. But I really liked it. I was curious, but gosh, guys, there were a ton of meetings that I was on a crash learning course. I'm, it, it looked like I was taking notes about the meeting and maybe quite, all I'm writing down are the acronyms that are being thrown around, you know? And then afterwards going around, what did that mean? What group was that, you know? And still, to some extent, when I get with the infrastructure guys, I, I, it's over my head, but certainly learned a lot. I think what attracts me to it and why I think family medicine, primary care in general, it goes back to what I was saying, sort of being a liaison with my patients from a subspecialist. I'm that connection point. My team's that connection point between the clinicians, the nurses, the physicians, and the IT team. And just like doctors can be bad about speaking in medical ease and patients get confused, it's the same thing happens. And and just understanding the why. My physician colleagues are so much better off if they understand the why behind a change that happens. You know, several years ago, we went to a 15-character password. 
I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. You know, I just, this is going to be bad. But to try to explain why, whether you use, you know, some stories from the news, I mean, we've had a couple of unfortunate instances with local, other health systems in our vicinity have cyber attacks, you know, bringing those things to light and making sure people understand this is why we're doing this, not to make your life more difficult. Really, we hate this, like we, but this is our solution right now. Or to throw out a potential solution that's going to lighten a workload, you know, what's in it for them type of thing. I think that's why I've done okay with my role as I've gotten up to speed on the, the technology parts of it. And I still depend heavily on my team members for that, but I know enough both to be dangerous as well as to represent the department in, in meetings and things where I can, I know there's some things we need to look at with a product or a software or something like that before, you know, we take it, Hey, we've got this process in place, guys, this is going to have to have a cyber review, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, that, it's, it's one of those things that I'd never mapped out. I've used it with my kids as a, a story about don't have to have every step ironed out for the rest of your life. Like I had no idea that I'd go to solo practice. Are you kidding me? Like I never would have thought to do that. That's, that's crazy to be employed as well as to just spend most of my time administratively as a CMIO. Like that, those were just, there was no roadmap for that. Just stepped through the door that was offered and, and have fallen in love with it. I love, love, love the fact that we can make some changes at a systems level, sometimes at a national level, although impact on a committee is questionable. But, you know, have that and then see those effects and know, wow, I, I helped out a bunch of folks that were in my position before and then all the patients that they serve, that, that gets me up in the morning for sure. It's a little bit like when COVID hit, like we were working like crazy, right? But you just knew who you were supporting and, and what they were experiencing. And there was like no way you had any trouble getting out of bed with that, you know, even though the work was crazy, uh, crazy hard, crazy long, just no problem. And, and it's, that's, that's a fun, fun thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of knowing enough technology to be dangerous and COVID times, right before COVID in 2019, you were already exploring Ambient Voice and ML-led precision medicine. I'm really curious, how have those initiatives evolved today and what progress has been made in integrating them into practice since COVID? Yeah, with the Ambient Voice, I got that vision for that early on. When I saw this, it was Nuance's predecessor to Dax Copilot. Almost it, the video I saw was just a mock-up. Like it wasn't a real product or anything that existed. It was their vision. And I'm like, holy cow, that would change my career path from a practicing physician. Like I just like to have to not deal with the computer like that and just focus on you as a patient. There's some studies out there and I certainly can't quote them to you, but that I learned in residency about patients' perception of the time you spend with them, patients' perception of the focus that you have on them. And there were some attendings that I had that were really, really good at that and just watching them. And you realize it's just that it's that face-to-face eye-to-eye contact and, and that shows that you care. And even if you have the, the best heart in the world, if you're turned away constantly just typing, it, it there's a disconnect. And so I, I just thought early on, this is a game changer for us, not just getting your notes down, but I went ahead and could see Hey, well, if that could pull up my orders, that's, I mean, the note is one thing. The orders can be such a problem because you're, you don't remember the exact x-ray that this one, and then if it's at a certain location, the patient wants to go to, and then you've got to pull like, oh, it's just, it's maddening. That's an administrative task that we're not good at, or at least don't want to have to deal with. I just know you need an x-ray and I want to see the result. Like that's where I, my job should end. And so to see it evolving, it's not quite there yet, but by next summer, fall, I would see them pulling up orders. Um, I was able to to sit in with some folks and see some kind of demos of that. Like that's, that's kind of game changing. So 
Yeah, we were early adopters of Nuance's stacks in its sort of classic form where there's a person involved. The AI creates a note on the DAX side. There's a person that does a quality review before it comes back to me. So there's a turnaround time of a couple of hours. And for a lot of people, that still was transformative for them. If the chief operating officer for our medical group probably has had twice as many compliments, comments about that project out of all the years she's been here, it provides a little bit of financial protection to the project, I think, too, because it's like this has been so, not for everybody, it's not for, for everyone. I'll be clear about that, at least in its current form. But for those that it helps, it's life-changing. And to hear people say, you don't, you want to get a quote about DAX from me, a provider saying this, just talk to my wife. I've got my weekends hey. back. Like I spend time with my family now. And, you know, again, it's not all that dramatic, but the thing that I noticed when I utilized it was the cognitive load. And that's so difficult to measure. But at the end of the day, when you're just, my brain is spent, there's nothing left to give to your family or whatever when you get home, it's just lighter. Like I, 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 it's just lighter. I took care of you. My notes kind of came to me. I mean, I've said this before, but it's crazy to think about this multitasking thing that we're supposed to do as physicians. I'm listening to you about a problem that you may have. I'm developing a differential diagnosis, maybe doing an exam and some and ordering some testing. Oh, at the same time, please take notes from the meeting, right? Like it, it's just crazy that it's developed that way. It sounds so, you don't have your CEO leading, you know, leading a meeting and taking notes. You, you're not supposed to text and drive. And it's all because you're, you, multitasking is a myth, right? You have to focus on what's important. And I think some of these technologies, um, there's obviously more than just DAX, but that's been my experience. It really helps. So we're, we're really close. Uh, I hope when the general availability of DAX Copilot, we had some delays in some of the things we had to have prerequisite to go on their early adopter piece. But I'm kind of glad because the early adopters didn't have it integrated into Epic's Haiku, their mobile device. And so when we go live, they'll be able to just use their phone to record it. The note will be in Epic on their phone and, and taken care of. So really excited about that. I think the next step is convincing Nuance for some kind of institutional license instead of an individual license, because it is pricey. The Copilot should go down in price for us just because we've taken the person out of it. But an institutional license would be great, just like you have with Dragon or other voice um, dictation kinds of things. Boy, then your use cases start really opening up. They start using in nursing. I, like I think nursing intake forms when they're doing an admission in the hospital, it, that's got to be maddening. You know, there's 50, 60 checkboxes that they have to do. You know, if they could just talk to the patient and the checkboxes and the, and the note gets filled out, like I think that would be a real win for nurses just as one example. And can I ask you, when you think about like how you would roll this out across different specialties and, and physicians, so I've gotten different feedback around, like there's some people that would say, well, um, we don't want to force adoption. So we're going to make it available. Whoever wants to use, let's say Copilot, they can use it. If they don't like Ambient, they don't have to use it. There are others who might say, no, we want a standardized approach to how we do things at the system. So if we're going to do it, the plan is eventually to get everyone on it. I guess, any thoughts as to how you would navigate the right way to do that rollout? I can tell you how we did it and, and sort of pros and cons. You know, initially we had, you know, like 10 or 15 people to pilot it. And the mistake that I made was getting all my informatics buddies to, you know, because they were excited about it. Those were the wrong people. Not all of them, but they were really good at Epic. They had their notes set up. They were fast. They, you know, they knew all the functionality which is probably another discussion like, okay, well, if everybody knew it that well, then you wouldn't have as much of an issue. But 
we took that approach where we said, really, anybody that's interested. And at the time, they didn't have all the specialties available when we first rolled it out. But subsequently, I think you can be in any specialty. And, and the majority of primary care, but we have cardiology, OBGYN, ortho. Ortho's been a real, like, that's one that's been really helpful, I think. They see so many patients. Procedurals, like, I don't know that procedures are the best way to use DAX. If you've got a what we call a smart form within Epic that's so fast and it's kind of the same procedure you're doing over and over again with very little variability, to dictate that into a, a DAX is probably not worth it. Again, unless the price comes to a point where it's like, it's so inexpensive that you, from the get-go, that's how you get trained on how you do a procedure or what have you. But at least at current pricing for us, it's not something we could offer to everybody. Now, what'll be fascinating is the biggest sort of turnoff that we had, most physicians loved it, but those that left it cited the fact that there was this turnaround time. They wanted, at the end of the day, they wanted to be done with all their notes. And if you had, even in the best turnaround time, we were two hours, three hours, you still had four or five notes at the end of the day that you were doing the next day. And, and some just said, I, I got to be done. That's my, that's my personality. That's the way I want to handle my workflow. So I'm anxious to have kind of a, a trial of sorts where we have what I would call DAX co-pilot naive providers had never seen it, never done it before. Those that had been using the, the regular up to this date, and then those that left and see if there's some differences between them as we move forward. But no, we've had success with lots of specialties. It just, it really depends on your comfort level with how you phrase your notes. That's it's not that it's wrong. It's just, I like to say it this way. Well, the AI may not word it exactly. So maybe with time, you can you can train it. You could say to this sentence here, I want it to say something more like this. But as it exists now, not many, but we've had a couple of providers that say, I just like my own voice in it and I don't. But it's a, it's pretty amazing how it will tease out the superfluous thing. You know, it's not a transcript, right? It, and to see the comments that you had as you come in and you're like, Ooh, man, it is getting cold out there. Like that's not in there, right? Yeah. But then sometimes things like, I'm sorry to hear about your dog. That's got to be rough. There'll be a, you know, there'll be a sentence about the patient's been feeling down because their dog died wow. or something like that. So those are the, the, I think the tweaks that'll come with time and as the models get better, but that's, that's been the big change not to get off track, but like when they were able to apply the large language models to me, that's been the, where they were actually able to go to that real time. I, I don't know when or, cause we were, we were a year and a half into it and we didn't have anybody that wasn't, cause that was the promise. Hey, we'll get you to real time, but we didn't have anybody that was to real time at that point with the current technology. Large language models come along and we've got a different ballgame. Hey, very cool. So Brett, I wanted to ask, you've mentioned actually in the past around the importance of minimizing distractions for clinical workflows, quoted saying one click is one click too many. Yeah. And so obviously ambient plays in there, but your point in that conversation at least was to build a solid operational foundation or process around whatever the workflow is before layering on new tech. And so I'm curious now that AI and LLMs have become very, very popular, how is your philosophy around operational before layering on tech when it comes to AI? Yeah, that's a great question because it may fundamentally change. The comment that I made was really in the context, the original comment was in the context of you know, I would talk to a lot of startups that had these great products and whether they were solving a problem that we had or not, it didn't matter. So let's just assume that they were. They would start off with, you know, we'll put a link into Epic. All you have to do is click here and it's going to open up this screen. And you're, and I'm just like, no, like you lost me. I'm not doing that. Like, and, and I know that sounds like harsh or I get 
big eyes. Like, I'm just trying to save you a lot of time because that's what my colleagues will tell you. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm already, you know, distracted enough. And so it's once you find a workflow that works and it could be an inefficient workflow, but you, you stick with it. And, but what I think the large language models and AI will do is really almost force a provider to really re-examine those workflows because it, it's that big of a difference. If I come in and I say, Josh, if, if you'll just click here, it will save you three clicks down the road. Yeah, but I'm so used to clicking here and I don't care about it. Like, if I say click here and I save you 45 clicks, okay, maybe that's a behavioral change that I'm willing to do because that's the other piece that I don't think a lot of these companies recognize is the workload that the average physician is carrying is such that it's really, it's, it's heavy and we need to work on that. And we are, but so if you add just that one click from you, like it's too much. And, and yeah. so that's, that's my heart where it came from. It wasn't to be, we're not doing what, you know, anything else, which, you know, I know some of my colleagues, it can come across that way, but that's, that's not it at all. It's, it's really sticking up for them and saying, I've been there, man, I know what you're talking about. And, and so it'll be very interesting to see if we just get an entire new way of doing things. Uh, you know, Microsoft has their annual report on work or something like that from 23. And, you know, it's all, how, how do you want to do work? Like, I think that's, that's where we're, you know, we we're talking earlier about your wife and having this opportunity in med school. Like, I think it's going to look so different in 24 or 36 months, or at least it could. And so what do we want it to look like? What do you want to do? What do you not want to do? And and then let's sit down with developers and say, how, how can we take this off of them? It's totally appropriate for physicians to say, I don't want to do that. Sometimes, you know, we tend to give up some of our, our, uh, some things we don't need to give up because we just get overburdened. Like somebody else can do that. Like, no, you really want your physician to do that versus signing off on some form, you know, a handicap form. Like, come on, can somebody else do that for a handicap parking sticker? So, cause all, the, all those little things add up, but yeah, I think we're at a really cool time. I know it's frustrating for a lot of providers, but it's not a pipe dream to talk about some really, really different ways of doing care. Well, I think to your point, going from you know, three clicks to one click is, is almost like too incremental. So if you're a staff or a clinical member, it's like, well, why would I want to change my workflow just to save three clicks? But to your point, if it's going from 45 clicks to one click, okay, now that's a, a huge leap forward. We've reimagined the entire experience. Okay, that's worth investing in. So it can't be incremental, basically. You know, people don't have time for incremental changes and, and improvements in, in the health. Very well said. Very well said. I'll give you an example. So we have to buy law if we prescribe a controlled substance. I don't know if it's this way across the country, but in Kentucky, we have to query our PDMP, patient monitoring drug program. And CASPER is the acronym for us in Kentucky. It took 45 to 52 clicks for me to look you up. And, you know, and I'm, I'm required to. And so that's not going to happen while you're there most of the time, which is not optimal. You want it to be, you know, in real time kind of thing. Well, we were able to work with Casper and a hub of sorts to integrate that into Epic. And it's one click, you know, it says PDMP, click there, pops up, that's it. You talk about changing behavior. You think someone's going to log into the Casper portal any longer? You know, it's, it wasn't incremental. It was a big deal. And so much so that, you know, we haven't been able to integrate yet with Indiana for reasons I'm getting to, but yet, and it's like, I feel terrible because I know how helpful that is and how much time savings and how much more that PDMP is utilized appropriately because it's so easy to get to. So yeah, I, I think you're right. Incremental is not the answer. I will tell you a funny, uh, one or two click improvement that, that could be transformational, at least for me. So you know, I, I know you just shifted, I think, full-time to Teams at, at Baptist. So 
Uh, we still have the Zoom, Google Meet, Teams combo in our organization. And I, I love my Zoom. I, I really don't like Teams. But there is that automatic, if you create an Outlook meeting, it can, it'll throw Teams right in there, whether you want them to or not. You know, that one click being saved every time. Boy, do I, do I really like that. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? It is. Um, I think what you're seeing too, speaking of kind of meeting organizers, what I've noticed, and I don't know with Zoom if it would be the same, because it, it came down to cost for us, right? We were paying for Zoom and we're a Microsoft shop, so it was kind of included in our license and so we needed to ship. But now what I find is when I go to these meeting invites, related documents are brought to me. Um, and they're not things that like, oh, the admin, you know, connected it to the meeting. Oh, here's the agenda. Here's it. No, 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 no. This is like an email that talked about the meeting and here, you know, that are brought uh, underneath it. So again, just an inkling of how, how can we do this differently, more efficiently and, and in, a, in a way that's fun and pleasurable and you enjoy interacting with the technology to take care of patients. I think as part of the 2024 AI roadmap for Epic, there's going to be some element of servicing, I forget the term that you, but servicing insights into the patient chart to some extent that that's contextual. I don't quite know how sophisticated it's going to be, but there is some of that coming, it sounds like. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of note summary kinds of pieces, hospital and ambulatory, like basically since I last saw this patient. Well, if you've never seen them, you get a, a different summary than if you just saw them last week. Um, but then, yeah, using their Cosmos database, there's... I don't know if they're calling it, still calling it patients like me or something like that, where they give you, I don't know, they're, they're definitely not going to call it best advice for my patient because then then the FDA gets all up and armed, like, how do you know what's best about? But advice to say, Brett, this is his age, these are his labs, these are medicines, his blood pressure is not adequately controlled. Most people choose this and based on this data, you know, and kind of give you a, an assist. It's still your choice. Yeah. That's, yeah, I, I would see like at least in hypertension and some other areas, some big areas that I'd have a lot of data of that coming relatively soon. Can I ask you, like, do you worry about like with, with all this automation that's going to come thanks to AI and, and generative, do you worry about like automation complacency? Because you come from a long career where you didn't have that automation. So you had to develop your strong clinical acumen and think from first principle and you couldn't rely on all of these automatic resources, but the up and coming clinician who is going to start practice with all these things in place, like, do you worry that there's going to be almost like over-reliance on the automation and then lose some of that, that acumen potentially? I, I do. I think you make a really, really great point that because it's a machine somehow, it's like, oh, it's a hundred percent correct. I don't have to think about it. There was just, you know, it, we're really careful right now where we're going to put AI in the clinical space, right? We're looking right now at almost exclusively administrative kinds of tasks. And I think it was emphasized, there was an article in JAMA Pediatrics just last week. You know, each of those journals kind of has like a challenging case, you know, I don't whenever, whatever the issues come out. Because pediatrics is different, you know, they're not just little adults and they hadn't seen any of the AI stuff like ChatGPT, how can they diagnose kids? They hadn't seen any of that. They took those challenges from the previous two or three years and threw that data in there to see if ChatGPT 4, I think it was, could diagnose these challenging cases. And it was like an 83% diagnostic inaccuracy. Maybe they got the right organ system, but they didn't get the right diagnosis. And so it's just a reminder. I We have an AI oversight committee and I put that on as part of the, the news to, to comment on because I think we need to be reminded that these things are, number one, really new. They're not trained on just medicine, at least most of the open models. And we have to be careful. It's really, really exciting. And I think it could be a big help. 
But I think that goes to both medical school training as well as when you onboard with an organization and that that you're reminded of that. This is a help and assist. This isn't, you know, you don't can't rely on it 100% of the time. Just like EKGs. I mean, ever since I've been a physician, the EKG machine would give me a, a readout. And, you know, we were trained, cover that up. Don't look at it. Make your own assessment. You know, the reality is you probably at over time start looking at that, but you still need to make sure if it says right bundle branch block, look, is that, do you see that there? So yeah, I think that's real. What's funny is, you know, when we first went live with our instance of Epic, we get all kinds of complaints about med warnings or BPA that pops up and all this. And, and maybe that was a legitimate, I mean, we had too many, whatever, but as we fine tune things over time, we'll remove them. If they're not effective or we're not seeing a good response or we take them out. And now I don't know that it's more common, but pretty common we'll get, Hey, I should have gotten a warning here. Why didn't I get a warning here? How come something didn't fire and tell me not to do this? Like, cause you're still a doctor and you know, we were trying to limit, you know, there's that fine line, right? Between, you know, just alert fatigue and giving you something meaningful. It's amazing. We were pretty proud. We're in the I just learned this last week, the upper quartile of Epic response rates to our BPAs at 26%. 26% of our BPAs are responded to. And that's the upper quartile. Okay. You know, it's kind of just give you some perspective on, uh, I just got to click, I got to get through my work and I'm not paying any attention. So I think what you said has a lot of validity and it is something that we need to be careful with. <laughs> it reminds me, so my wife and I were driving the other day and we were going to a place that we were unfamiliar with and I, I did I didn't really know the route, but I had my GPS. So I was following the GPS and it's super reliable, like, you know, 99% of the time. But this time I didn't know that there was all this construction that blocked the entire area probably, you know, for months now, but I guess it wasn't updated in Google maps. And I was like, oh man, like I'm kind of struggling to figure out a different path. Sure. It's true. I'm old enough to remember when we would go to the beach or something from Kentucky, we would go to AAA and get a trip tick, yeah. which was this folded map thing that would kind of open up for you the different parts of your drive. But yeah, I can tell you as the guy in my family that does most of the driving when we go on trips, having a GPS, whether it be Waze or something like that, is just so not, I mean, to not think about that, just to get in and <laughs> pop in an address, oh, so less stressful. But yeah, and then when it doesn't work. That happened to me once in Charleston. I got to the end of a bridge kind of thing, and it was like, there's no bridge here. <laughs> like, I think someone forgot the update. That's I mean, it's a funny example when no one's life is on the line, but but in healthcare, I can only imagine yeah. that if, if you lean on, you know, the the technology too much and you don't develop your own skills, definitely that could be a problem area on the road. I also yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I'll make one last comment on that. I think you see that in the generation of physicians that are behind me, uh, and this isn't a knock on them. I just think it's, it's technology is a little bit more reliance on technology and testing and less on the physical exam. Yeah, maybe. maybe it's, maybe it's a medical ease thing. Meaning if I testify that I felt the patient's spleen and it wasn't enlarged, does that count as much as I got a CT scan and it showed us 15 centimeters? Like, I don't, you know, I don't know, but you know, we were trained to do things physical exam wise that sometimes I think have been lost. So I, I to your point, I think it just underlines got to make sure people understand how these things work currently, future, whatever, and then the limitations to that. So you still have your skill set. I got to say, I'm actually surprised and not disappointed necessarily, but surprised that the physical exam is still highly taught. So even in my, my wife's class right now, there's a huge focus on the physical exam. Although I'm kind of curious how much of that is still practically used day to day with all the tier point, all the testing going on. I always wonder what well, some point would they just get phased out when the diagnostic technology is so good. Do we even need, I mean, the tricorder in Star Trek could be overwatched. I mean, that's like the, yeah. 
that's the one device you need um, in the future. Um, I think it also depends on where you practice too. And I know we're probably mostly talking about North America kind of, um, but if you leave the country and you don't have some of these things, or honestly, in some of the areas of Kentucky or Mississippi or other, like you don't have broadband, for instance, or you don't have a smartphone, there are some things that you're not going to have available to you testing wise or monitoring wise. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you make a good point at maybe at some point, maybe I've, again, I'm showing my age, my gray hairs that uh, there's still a utility to the physical exam. Here's the thing though, there's going to be a point in time we have to explain that to patients because they expect me to touch them. There are tons of times that I'm, I'm create my differential. And I'm like, I think this is what's going on. You use your physical exam to confirm it. But I really know what I'm going to hear or what I'm not going to hear. But if I didn't do that, all the patients are like, he didn't even touch me. I mean, I've heard it before from, you know, oh, I went to the orthopedist and I told him about my knee and he didn't even touch it. He didn't even touch my knee. Kind of thinking to myself, well, he didn't really have to. He saw your x-rays, you know, that's not going to make any difference. But that's the expectation. So if we go there, we're going to have to at least educate the patients that it's not necessary because the expectation is still there. That's Maybe great... all this video visit, telemedicine stuff will yeah. shift the culture more towards not believing that they don't need it as much. Well, there is, so I only know one company, but I'm sure there's others. Like there's like Tidal Care, for example, oh, that I yeah, know has, like they'll send like, I guess, uh, stethoscopes or something like that to the, an autoscope to the patient's home. You do it on yourself and you can hear it remotely for the clinician. I'm not sure how much of that's taken off, but that maybe is a sort of a bridge to the future, to your point, using telehealth as a way to test that out. Yeah, we utilize Tido Care, and it has been a bit of a rough, challenging road, let's say. When you present, you're at home, and I'm able to look at your eardrum on my monitor the size of a cantaloupe. It's amazing. Like, yep. it's, you almost wonder, should I have this in my office? Because this is fantastic. The problem is, back to what I had said before about just the, the workload on a physician. We show that to them, and they're like, this is amazing. I want every one of my telemedicine visits to have this device. This is great. And then they go right back to the hamster wheel they were on and nothing changes. No. So where we have seen the most payoff so far is using a Tido device in an urgent care setting. So we put them in 10 or 12 of our urgent care strategically as overflow. The idea came to me when we were bringing a hospital live and one of their urgent cares, there was one provider and he was just hell bent on putting his notes in his laptop. The concept of a server and his notes not being on that laptop were just really, we couldn't convince him. He was like, no, I need to finish my notes at home. That's why I'm putting it on the laptop. You know, and you're just like, okay, just go. We're already three hours behind. And my thought was doggone it. If I had thought ahead, I would have had virtual care available for these folks that are in the waiting room for three hours for their earache and their sore throat. And so what we did was we experimented with putting those Tido devices in the urgent cares and just told the urgent cares, hey, when you reach a certain point where you're like, people are starting to complain or it just feels like it's a long wait, offer them. If it's appropriate, here's a list of things that are appropriate. Offer them that kiosk. And um, I don't know if it's our surprise or not, but it's taken off. We had one urgent care location, did it six or seven times in a day. And they, they actually emailed us. And they're like, this was a godsend. This really, really helped us offload it. We're going to take the next step. And in one of our markets, roll it out to primary care offices as a spillover. Um, if you're not familiar with primary care, this just happens all the time. It's 3.30 in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, and you get a couple people calling in saying, is there any way they can work me in? I, you know, I got this sore throat. And at that point in the day, you probably already worked in three or four. You got your kid's soccer game is sit, and you're just like, they're going to have to go to the urgent care if they can't wait till tomorrow. How about come into our office, 
it's not me seeing them, but it's the same staff putting you in the room. You get cared for at the same location that you normally come into. And in some of our more rural locations, telling them to go to their urgent care is an hour and a half away. So they could go to their primary care office and, and have that problem taken care of. So anyway, more to come with that, but that's how we've utilized that device so oh. far. Well, just, just to unpack a bit more, it's really interesting. So like, let's say in the urgent care center, like you, there's too many patients to be seen right now, and but they could use the kiosk. And then there's another, let's say, clinician who's, I guess, part of the, your telehealth service. And so they're virtually being connected into the kiosk right. with the patient. That's <laughs> oh, right. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So we have a virtual care team that does our on-demand video visits. Um, so 24 seven, and then they also handle our e-visits or asynchronous things. And so they're also, you know, there's a great group of people that are, they're used to change and, and trying new things. And so, uh, we've got them doing those title care visits from the urgent care. And then what we'll also do is strategically let patients know, Hey, basically you could have done this from home. Here's how you can get your own device for it at home. So that again, there's some learning there and it's not, you know, hopefully not overutilized. The good thing about trying it in an urgent care setting is that the worst thing that can happen is like, this is not appropriate. Well, guess yeah. what? You're sitting in the urgent care. <laughs> Just get back in line and let's let's have the physician that's there see you. So far, so good. That's been our, the big movement there uh, over the last few months. But there's this big conversation in the past year or two about, you know, retail entering into healthcare and then partnerships between retail and health systems. Do you think soon we're going to see, I don't know, a Baptist branded kiosk in like a CVS or a Walmart. And so, you know, that's a great question. You know, we experimented with that, the group of, that I just mentioned, the virtual care team that we have, that these APRNs that we utilize, they came from a failed effort with that. Now I know we're living in different times then, but we had some clinics in Walmarts and it just, it just didn't go well for yeah. us. And so it was that time providentially that we were shutting those down that we're like, Hey, this is a valuable group of people. And they were, the medical group was looking to put them in different practices. And we were like, whoa, wait a minute. Could we use them for, you know, this? And and then COVID hit and it was just, you know, I think the only concern early on was, is there going to be enough work for this group of people? And <laughs> now, you know, it's kind of like, oh gosh, every time we add something, we want to make sure that they still have the bandwidth to, to cover that or do we need to add people to, to that team? Well, one thing I didn't know about, because so, you know, Dollar General, is huge. I had no idea. There was like thousand dollar generals. Apparently they have a chief medical officer and they're looking to bring in primary care healthcare into dollar general stores. So I don't know, maybe there's something there. Uh, maybe you're on something. I reached out to their CMO when I saw that they had hired him and we had a conversation and of course it's a publicly traded company. So, I mean, oh my gosh, that what I had to sign and what he had to yeah. say before we had any kind of conversation was, was crazy. Um, yeah, I think that like some you know, Dollar General is probably the biggest example, but some other companies that they're into real estate, right? Like there's so much of the population that is within 10 miles of one of their buildings and they see that opportunity. I don't know that, I don't see them actually like standing up a clinic, but I could see them being the place where you go to get a test and yeah. like, oh, you know, this could be kind of COVID's not a good example, but you know, something else that that's not off the shelf. Okay. Go to Dollar General. That's where you'll get the test and then they'll result it back to me. And how you know telehealth could expand in that regard, but yeah, it's it's a, an interesting time to see everybody kind of making a play and everyone figuring out this is a complicated industry. <laughs> it's highly regulated. <laughs> well, it's like a few years ago, people would joke, half joke, that every every tech company is becoming a healthcare company. What now? Literally every company, Amazon's a healthcare company. Like every company's a healthcare company. Is what I'm what I'm seeing now. It feels like it. It feels yeah. like it. So that was one of the things that we tried to do strategically is 
we wanted to make sure we had some offerings in place. Like we're in Kentucky. We're not in Silicon Valley. We're not in New York City. So I feel like we had some time. But at some point, when a patient realizes they can do something online with someone, how much longer will they continue to look to me? They looked at Dr. Oliver. Oh, can I do that there? No, I can't. So I'm going to go over here. How many times will they continue to look to me as their provider until they don't even start with me? They start with Amazon. So I wanted to have certain things like the e-visits and video visits and access like that in place if we, you know, were, were threatened in that manner. Some of the interesting things is like, if you're, if you're a one medical, which we don't have any one medicals too close to us, but just as an example, then you do need some downstream specialty care that are just going to come from that. So do you, are we going to see more partnerships with health systems um, to expand yeah. primary care in an atypical way? I don't know. Interesting. Great question. So, Brett, just being mindful of your time, we're going to flip over to the fast five lightning round. I really, okay. I wish we had another two hours with yeah, you. Yeah, sorry, probably... I'm a little bit, a little bit worried. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Five questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. Okay. The first okay. question we have is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? You know, probably gifted the most is Think Again, Adam Grant's book. I, I just love the way, I love looking at things differently or learning things that I didn't know. A little bit like a Malcolm Gladwell, probably yeah. anything that he's written, but I haven't given away as many of, of those as the Think Again. Um, and then maybe Extreme Ownership is in a close second, if you've not read that one. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? I would love to meet my great-grandfather. I obviously didn't, but he was the chaplain at Bataan. So in World War II, the Bataan Death March, he was the chaplain of that group of, of prisoner men. And I have a short, like, 45-second video um, that when they were liberated from that prison camp of him talking and just, I, did, I you know, see his picture and, and he wrote a small book afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation. I mean, talk about when things get bad. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, you know, Epic's not working or we got some downtime or something. You know, like, let, let's put it in perspective and... I think uh, to understand his faith and 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 that would be would be really neat. Yeah, fascinating. Question three: Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Gotta have the ability to read people's minds, right? Like, talk about some interesting meetings, you know, <laughs> Zoom or in person. That's right, absolutely. Uh, that's great. Follow up to that: What if you couldn't turn that power off? Would you still choose it? Oh. Yeah, that would be challenging. That's true. I'd have to think through that one real carefully. Turn out if you've ever seen that Jim Carrey movie where he's God and he's getting all the yeah. messages, you know, like that, yeah. that might, that might not right. might drive you nuts. Okay. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? If you're not in healthcare, I think they would find it insane that we still use a physical fax machine in many <laughs> of our okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I think is insane. Definitely. Last question. If you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? You know, it's a little, I'd switch gears a little bit. I've got a pretty strong faith background and I, I would, I would really like to see some period of time of Jesus walking in the earth. And sure. I'd just like to be a fly on the wall when he was teaching something and see what it was, you know, you've got all kinds of interpretations and paintings and, uh, and descriptions, but I'd like to really see that myself. Sure. Yeah. No, that'd be cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brett, for sharing some time with us today. Uh, really awesome work that you're doing right now. And I'm so glad that you could share that with our audience. So that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Brett, Dr. Oliver, again, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. It was fun. Thanks for the time, guys.